Will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we are eternally grateful um, for your word and for your Son, Jesus Christ. And so now we pray that as we open up the word and as we look to Jesus, that you would give us um, maybe a fresh look, a fresh understanding, a fresh word um, from stories that we may have read hundreds of times. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This morning, we are continuing our sermon series. It's a short sermon series. It's about five weeks, and it's taking us from the Ten Commandments and leading us to the season of Advent, right? Now, we, we usually call it Christmas. If you go to the shopping malls or shopping stores, there's Christmas ornaments everywhere already. I kind of like it. I know some people don't like it, but I mean, I just love Christmas time. And, and having the choir up here, doesn't it just make it feel like Christmas a little bit? Like when you're growing up and you hear, oh, I love it. Like I could keep listening to it, by the way, and thank you so much for being here. Um, but yeah, it feels like Christmas. And so what we're doing is we're doing a sermon series called Journey to Hope. Because for us, hope isn't just a, a wish. It's not this thing that, well, we, we wish or we hope for things. But as Christians, our hope is who? Jesus. Jesus is our hope. And through this, this five set of te- this five teachings um, set of series, we will be looking at Jesus for, for, for our hope. But to get started, I want you to look at this one phrase, two phrases, one slide. And it says, death, where is your sting? Or where is your victory? Where is your sting? This is the foundational uh, passage Phrases for this series, The Journey to Hope. Because in essence, without hope, you have nothing. With hope, what happens? You can overcome and go through almost any obstacle. Amen? Yeah, because if you have hope, nothing will keep you down. And so what we find when Paul writes this, he goes, Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? And so when Paul writes this, the answer is rhetorical because it's, it's nowhere. Death, where is your sting? It's nowhere. Death, where is your victory? It's nowhere because I died and I have resurrected. But another way of thinking about death, where is your sting? It's now here sometimes. The sting, the victory of death sometimes seeps into our lives and things get really difficult. And death, is present everywhere. I, could, I would say it this way, that death is a kind of inconvenient reality. Death is real all around us. So I'd put it this way. I wrote a few things, and I want you to try to follow along with me. It's not just talking about the death where you breathe your last breath, but death where we see everywhere, and this is what I mean. So death is an inconvenient kind of reality. Death is it's like the temporary or the victory or the sting of death. It's the temporary roadblock when you're trying to get somewhere. It's the detour on the road of life. The sting of death is the gum that gets stuck to the bottom of your shoe. It's the leaky faucet at night that you hear all night. It's that hold on, that de- on the check you're trying to deposit in the ATM when you need the money now, but you can't get it for a full business day later. It's the C on your progress report, but I think all our kids are next door, so I'll have to tell them that one later. The sting, the annoyance of death and destruction, it's the video buffering when you're trying to watch your favorite Netflix movie. It's the no reception signal on your phone when you really need to make a call. 
It's the long line at the grocery store when you only have three items, but the express line is closed. It's the, I'm sorry, ma'am, but we don't carry that shoe in your size anymore. It's the empty jar of Nutella in the pantry when you've been craving Nutella all day. It's the battery on your phone dying in the middle of an important call. It's dropping your phone and the screen breaking. It's buying the latest version of the iPhone and realizing that the next best thing is already here. You guys don't get that, do you? It's its competition. Come on, I'm trying to be an equal opportunity technology guy. (laughs) It's getting into your car when when you're already five minutes late and noticing that your car has no gas in it. It's getting in your car and it doesn't start. The sting of death is the extra pounds you've put on over the years. It's trying to get online and the internet isn't working. It's parents saying to kids, no, you can't do that thing that you really want. This is for the kids, and they're not in here, right? None of them, they're helping with the youth. Um, The sting of death, one of the ways I was bringing it home to some of them, it's playing a mission on your PlayStation or Xbox, and you keep failing and dying, so you have to keep playing it over. It's the sting of death. It's the annoyance. It's forgetting, to set up your, it's forgetting to set up your starting lineup for your fantasy football team, not realizing that you have three players on a bye week. No one plays fantasy football here? I know you guys do. It's watching... You guys get where we're going with this, right? Sting, the victory of death, it's everywhere. It's all around us. It's annoying. So here it is. It's watching your favorite television show on, on TiVo or on DVR... And right when you get five minutes to the end, you realize that it stopped recording. (laughs) It's the NHL, if we have any NHL fans here, canceling games through November because the players and owners can't come to an agreement. It's the Detroit Tigers being down two games to zero in the World Series. It's NASCAR. Just NASCAR. I was thinking about Dave when I wrote that one. <laughs> Just kidding. We love driving fast. It's your dog not being house trained. It's pouring yourself a bowl of cereal and finding out that the milk has, ex- has been expired for days. It's growing up and discovering that life isn't what you thought it would be when you thought of what it would be like when you were a child. Death, destruction, decay. If we really open our eyes, it's everywhere. It's all of those annoying things. And so on one hand, you know, Paul asks, death, where is your sting? And and on the one hand, the answer is it's nowhere. And yet on the other hand, we live with this tension that it's actually now here. It's everywhere all around us. And so as Christians, we look for reasons and for explanations as to why these sorts of things happen. And so the very best we have is death, where is your sting? Death, where is your victory? The very basic answer is it has been defeated. Our Journey to Hope series is about acknowledging that all of these things are terrible and horrible and we hate them, but yet in the midst of life, looking like all the list of things I just read, in the midst of all of the sickness and the suffering, there is still hope and we are not alone. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6 and 7. 
This is a story we know well. So I won't read the whole story. I just want to read the very important parts of it. So Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. This is what it says. Okay, so basically here's the story. The devil in the form of a flying serpent, which there's already something scary about that. I don't know why Eve was talking to a flying serpent, but I guess in the Garden of Eden, it wasn't scary. It was okay. So the devil, as a flying serpent, comes to Eve as she was walking in the cool of the garden, and she has a conversation with, and he has a conversation with her. And he says, didn't God say that you can eat out of any tree of the garden? And she says, yeah, we can eat out of any tree. Every single tree, God says, it's yours. The only one that we can't eat out of is, the, is from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so then the serpent says, oh, you really aren't going to die if you eat that. That's just silly. That makes no sense. You're the only two people on earth. God's not going to kill you off. Come on, God has too much at stake in you. I'm, I'm making this up, right? I can just imagine what it was like. But he, the devil, was able to convince Eve to take from this tree. And so this is the moment leading up to it. This is right before she takes it. She says this, verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good, was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. By the way, that puts to rest the whole, oh, it was all of Eve's fault. Adam was right there next to her. Okay, so we're equally, men and women, equally responsible. Verse 7, then, both, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig, fig leaves together and made coverings. There are three words in this passage. Three words that are good words. What is the first word that they use? She saw that it was what? Good, that it was desirable. And what was the third word? I don't have it in here. It was pleasing. These were all good things. So it's no wonder that when she's there faced in the midst of this and, and you have this flying serpent that she probably had no idea was the devil, right? Because there was they were in the Garden of Eden. Everything was perfect. Everything was the way it was supposed to be. Why would she have to be worrying about this serpent over here? And so she does what probably any one of us would have done. She takes what is pleasing, what looks good, and what is desirable. In essence, what she was doing is what we do whenever we think that the pastures or that, that the... Uh, what is it? Oh, man, I messed this up. I messed this up. She did yeah, what we do when we think that the grass is greener on the other side. Every time that we are faced with a temptation, when we give in to it, what we're really saying is, this is the life God has given me. I'm not happy with it. I want this life. Every time that we fall for a temptation or we go through with it, what we're really saying is, God, thanks, but no thanks. What we find here, it says that then the eyes of both of them were open. It's like saying, look at what you did now. They fell for what was good, pleasing, and desirable. Those are all good things, right? Right? Good, pleasing, and desirable. I mean, they're not bad words, right? It wasn't like she reached for something that was poisonous, disastrous, and horrible. She went for what looked good. She went for what she thought made sense. Think of it this way. 
We don't know what kind of fruit it was that was in the Garden of Eden, but we always like to refer to it as an apple because it's just an apple. Everyone likes apples, especially dipped in caramel, but that's a separate story. But the best illustration I could think of, and hopefully you will think of this in a positive way every time you eat an apple or you see an apple, is that the temptations are like apples. But not just any regular apples, but temptations are like razor-filled apples. They look good on the outside, and parts of it will taste good, but if you were to ever bite into an apple filled with razors, there is nothing but destruction that will follow, right? Right? It's what we tell, and this is what somebody reminded me this week because I didn't know, because I didn't go trick-or-treating. My parents never allowed me to. Um, I got one costume one year from Lucky's, back when we used to have the stores Lucky's, and it was a Sergeant Slaughter plastic um, uh, costume. It was a kind that you kind of have to not rip as you're putting it on. It was like $5, way more than my parents wanted to spend, and then I could only wear it to a parade at school, but I could never actually go door to door. That's how I was raised. So somebody reminded me this week when I was using the analogy of a razor-filled apple that I thought was awesome. Um, This person reminded me like, oh yeah, that's what we were told as kids to look out for when we went trick-or-treating. So if you take your kids trick-or-treating, beware of the razor-filled apples or poison-filled candy, right? (laughs) That's funny to me. Temptation is like a razor-filled apple. It looks good. It's pleasing to the eye. It's desirable, but yet if you were to take a bite of it, the consequence of that decision can be disastrous, not only for yourself, but for the people that are closest to you. So first image, razor-filled apples. So let's go to another story in the Bible. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew, Matthew chapter 4. It's a story we know kind of well, I hope, but it's one that I want to take us through again this morning. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus, after Jesus was baptized, right, Jesus was baptized, the dove comes down and says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Directly after Jesus' baptism, he goes into the wilderness, and this is where the story picks up. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, Tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone." And Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Oh, I guess I don't have the last one. And then the third one is, verse 8, Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this, he says, I will give to you if you will just bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. So there's a couple of things I want to point out about this. First of all, what are the words that Jesus responds with every single time? Three times he says what? It is written. Wouldn't it be nice to have the book that he was reading from? That's a joke. 
What is that book? A part, a part, a part of this Bible, because the New Testament wasn't written yet. Yeah. For Jesus, one of the ways, or, or what we find here, is that the way that he is able to resist the temptation, the very appealing temptation of food, of power, of having everything, what does he use? What is the counter to everything that the devil is telling him? It's the Word. It's the Scriptures. He says, it is written three different times to respond to him. Now, this is why this story is important, and maybe you haven't thought about this. If this was a conversation that happened between Jesus and the devil, who's going to tell that story? No one else was there. So where do we get the story? Did the devil tell the, the Matthew to write this story down? No, he has nothing to gain from it. So what we find here is that Jesus was the only one that could have shared this story. And for some reason, he felt obliged to tell his disciples of his experience of temptation. And the way that Jesus tells the story is that, in essence, what he tells the disciples, when you are tempted, turn to the Word. Now, what is the Word of God? What is the Word of God? Bible. But what is the perfect Word of God? Who is the perfect Word of God? Jesus. So when you find yourself in temptations, when you are standing before something that is good, pleasing to the eye, and desirable to make you smart, what does Jesus say to do? Turn to the Word, but really turn to the Word who is Christ. Hope in the midst of temptation isn't some ethereal wish of, oh, I hope I can get through this, but it is that you are founded, your faith in everything about you is founded in the person of Jesus. What's interesting is in the beginning, in the Adam and Eve story, the devil was tempting Eve and Adam to be like God. And he was saying, you really can't be like God, can you? Here, take this. And then what we find in the wilderness thousands of years later is the devil asking God, Jesus, can you really be human? Can you really go through all of these trials and temptations without pulling in your reserve of holiness and miracle-making power? You see, what we find is sometimes, and this is my point of view, is that when Jesus is tempted, it's like, yeah, but that was Jesus, and that was God, and he's way more powerful and smarter than I am. But what we find here is that Jesus was fully human as well as being fully divine, and our minds cannot grasp that, so we're not even going to try to explain it. But the very best that we can do to understand this is that when Jesus was in the desert, in the wilderness, and the reason he's in the wilderness is for the first century writers, what we find, he's okay right here, man. He's like my groupie. I love it. <laughs> I have a, my, my theory or my philosophy of kids in the church is let them run around and have fun. So I want them to remember church as a place of laughter and happiness and joy. You guys may not share that with me. I understand that. But for me, that's my joy. Run around all you want because you're going to have fun here because when we get to heaven, we're not going to be quiet sitting there, right? We're going to be probably having all sorts of fun because Jesus in the New Testament spent a lot of time at banquets and hanging out with friends eating. Amen? So we love kids in the church. But what we find... What we find in this is that Jesus, 
He did not call up on his reserves of power and of miracle-making things, right? He was fully human. He's taken out to the desert because for the, for the first century writers, when they use the word desert or wilderness, what they're basically saying is uncertainty. There's danger out there. We don't go out to the wilderness unless we go in packs, right? We're not going to go out there. And yet what we find is that Jesus was out there. He had fasted for 40 days. I can hardly go four hours without eating, okay? always thinking about food, good food too, but he was out there for 40 days and 40 nights and what he was saying, and then he was tempted. When Jesus was at his weakest, when he had nothing in the reserve tank, it was at that moment when he was most subject to taking these temptations, right? Hey, a little bit's not going to hurt. You know, if I just turn one little stone into a little piece of bread, that's not going to hurt. Oh, the devil's asking him, hey, if you bow down to me, all of this will be yours? What the devil was saying is, Jesus, do you really want to die for the sins of the world? I'll just give them to you now. You don't even have to go through the trouble. You don't have to go through the trouble of being betrayed. You don't have to go through the trouble of being nailed to a cross. You don't have to go through any of that trouble. He said, look, Jesus, bow down to me, and I'll make all of this yours. You know, the funny thing about that is, the devil didn't even have the power to do that. At Jesus' lowest point, at his emptiest, at his rock bottom, the devil says, I'll give you everything. Just bow down to me. Turn these stones into bread. I'll give you everything. And yet what Jesus says is, it is written, man doesn't live by bread alone. It is written, it is written, it is written. What we find here. And some of you might be saying, well, yeah, yeah, but Jesus doesn't know the kind of temptations that I'm going through. Or Jesus doesn't know this thing that is kind of being dangling in front of my face and I just I want to take it. He doesn't know about that. But the truth is he does. Because what we find in the Scriptures, if we go to, to James, no, to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. It says this. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive grace and receive mercy, and find grace to help us in our time of need. What does it say? That we do not have a high priest who hasn't been tempted, but rather we have a high priest who is able to empathize and sympathize with us because he, Jesus, was tempted just as we are today. Temptations that we face today aren't just about the thing that's right in front of us. The temptations that we face are about the deeper things of life. I I wrote it down this way. Temptations are shortcuts to life. So, temptations, we think, are going to instantly gratify that feeling that we need to, be, to fill. But the truth is that whenever a temptation arises, what it's really saying is that there's something empty inside of you that you need filling, that you need fixing, but this thing that is dangling in front of you, it's like, just take this and it's the easy, quick fix. Just do this, and this feeling of sadness or whatever it is you're feeling, that'll be filled by doing this. The problem with that is that that's a lie, and that's not true. 
for Christians, we are about doing the hard work about making our lives meaningful. And some of the hard work is about opening ourselves daily to Jesus and saying, whatever wrong I have, whatever sin I have committed, and and this is the prayer that I, I find myself praying, God, thank you that you have already forgiven me. And thank, me, thank, you, thank you that you will forgive me for what I will do today. So I pray now that in all that I do, that you would help me to glorify you and honor you. That becomes a whole different way of living. Because if we're just saying sorry for all the bad things we've done, then we're, we're, we have a very low view of who we are. And yet Jesus calls us saints, calls us sons and daughters of God. The temptation is always to take a shortcut. The temptation is that instead of accepting God's free gift of grace, the temptation is for us to work towards feeling like we've actually earned God's salvation. The temptation is, man, my marriage is just not going very great. It's not what I was hoping it would be. Wow, look at this other person. They really seem to get me. And so some people will say, well, that, that, then just go there because that's what God really wants you to do because he wants you to be happy. No, the Bible never says that. Because what we have to do is sometimes do the hard work of fixing this and not going to this. It's about living healthy lifestyles where we know, I, like I said in my pastor's page, there's, um, we always have fruit in our refrigerator, and fruit's good, right? You know, watermelon and mangoes is our fruit of choice, but we also have apples and bananas and all sorts of stuff. But hidden in my pantry it are these little handy snacks. You know what those are, right? They're the little crackers with the cheese. And it's like I, I'm coming downstairs while I'm in the middle of working on a sermon, and I'm like, man, I really want... You know, I'm going to have some fruit. I'm going to be good today. But as I pass the pantry, I'm like, one handy snack's not going to do very much. You know what? I'll have two handy snacks because these are little kid sizes, and I'm an adult, and I'll just work out double tomorrow. The temptation, temptations are always there. And the role of a temptation is to take you away from the life that God has for you. Here, here's the bottom line. We sometimes think that the temptation is, is a temptation to choose between God or Satan. That's false. The temptation is, do I choose the way of God or do I choose the way that will gratify me? Satan's not even a part of this equation. Satan doesn't need any followers. Satan just wants to get you away from God. And so Satan knows, like, hey, I'm not going to come to people and say, hey, I'm the devil. Would you like to worship me? Does the devil do that? No, I'd be scared. I would literally freeze. Okay, I'd be so afraid if the devil was in front of me. So instead, the devil's way slyer than that. So he's like, okay, they're not going to ever follow me, these Christians. But I can take their attention from following the way of God, and I can make it so that they just do what feels good to them. I'll distract them from doing what God wants for them, and I'll just dangle a few things in front of them so that they can choose that and they can feel happy for a moment. The temptation... Is God exploiting the things that you wish you had? Is the devil exploiting the things you wish you had, the emptinesses, and just dangling those things in front of you? We'll always go for the instant fix, almost always. But the truth is, is that the life of faith is a, life, is a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. And so we must always choose, just as Jesus chose in the desert, it is written, it is written, it is written. We come to the Word of God in Scripture, and we come to the Word of God who is Jesus Christ. And so I want to finish with this last passage in James chapter 1. This is what James, the half-brother of Jesus, says. 
When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But listen to this. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to what? Death. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? It's nowhere, and yet it is now here, everywhere. But what we find is that even in the midst of every single temptation, Jesus is found in our midst. And Jesus is always a choice. He is always the right choice. And I will, I will you know, spoil, life, spoil, life spoiler alert, sometimes choosing the way of Jesus is going to be harder than choosing the thing that you have right in front of you. Sometimes we have to resist the temptation of saying the thing that we're thinking but we know we shouldn't say. Sometimes we have to refuse the temptation of instead of fully investing in the people that God has given us, we have to resist going somewhere other than the people that God has given us to care for and influence over. Sometimes the temptation is just, this makes sense to me. It makes, it looks good. It looks desirable and pleasing. And we have to choose not that, but choose what is good and honoring and pleasing to God. So I would finish with this last thought. When temptations arise, we always know it's a temptation, right? Right? Yeah, we know. Come on. When the temptation is in front of us, we know it's a temptation. So I will challenge you and I will leave you with this. The next time that it's so much easier and it's so much more gratifying to go to this thing, I want you to take a step back and ask yourself, what is this thing going to fill in my life that I don't have? And once you've figured that out, go to the thing that you need to work on. Jesus will give you the power to do that, but he can't do it for you. God doesn't force himself on us. God doesn't force his way on us. He gives us the freedom to choose and to believe. He doesn't coerce you. Jesus works in the way of, it's up to you. I will provide everything for you. So the next time you are enticed to go here, I encourage you, take a step away from whatever this thing is. Examine it. Pray about it. And then do the very difficult thing to step this way. And I know that the step back from the temptation is hard. And it's even harder to take the right step. I get it. I know that. I'm human just like all of you. But this is more gratifying in the long run. This is the marathon that God is calling you to run, the one where you run side by side with him, and he will be the hope in the midst of every single temptation. Because remember, our high priest was tempted in every way that we are, and the way he responds is, it is written, it is written, it's already done. Death, where is your victory? We may feel a little bit here, but there is no victory. There is no real sting. Because in the end, God wins. Jesus wins. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Amen.